Last week, I didn't quite complete our foundations to eschatology. Main thing I was trying to stress was the kind of the interconnectedness or intertwining uh, of the message of the Bible, essentially. So when you you study eschatology, you almost can't study it in isolation, and I think that's probably what went wrong historically in terms of the rising of all these different viewpoints. Because I think if you take an overall biblical look at Scripture in general, then it's easier to kind of envision the end, because the end has been predicted throughout history. And we're going to focus on one of the passages that the Lord gave to the nation of Israel that essentially lays out all of eschatology for the nation of Israel even beyond our time frame. So I think it's important to have that biblical foundation to be able to put everything in perspective, and particularly this area that is so controversial in terms of different viewpoints. So I thought it was worthy of spending two sessions, and now it's kind of overflowing into this session, the foundation, what I call the foundation to eschatology. So I've been giving you a thumbnail sketch of Bible history and interspersed, showing the predictions that were made all the way back even before the fall. And then with the fall, we have a prophecy there that even that one outlines the rest of world history in terms of what God is going to do. He's going to reverse the effects of the fall, Genesis 3.15. So we looked at that passage. So I look at Bible history in kind of two parts Old Testament, anticipation of the Messiah, who will ultimately fulfill what's prophesied in 3.15. And in between, we have lots of not only prophetic statements, but also a progression of events, of kind of the outworking of what God is doing in history, and that is real history. Bible history is real history. So we concluded by looking at the anticipation of Messiah, And real briefly, we'll touch on this, the New Testament, and mainly focus, but you can summarize the whole New Testament as the ministry of Messiah, including the letters of Paul, because what Paul is doing is essentially doing what uh, Jesus commanded the disciples, is to basically tell the nations about him. So the letters, not only Paul, but James, etc., expand the ministry of Messiah and how the ministry of Messiah unfolds in this time frame. And the New Testament also tells us about the eschatology of the ministry of Messiah, which is not yet fulfilled. So eschatology doesn't just deal with future events, even from the first century, but goes all the way back to Genesis 2, as we looked at that passage, and even Genesis 3, particularly as it lays out the rest of world history. I've been focusing, as I did in the Foundations course, on the major events, because in each of these events, not only are each of these events predicted, but they also give us kind of the outworking of that plan that we've looked at in summary form. So we've looked at creation, we've looked at the fall, looked at the flood, and I put them on a timeline to stress these are just as historical as any historical event. 
I think I mentioned anything like Abraham Lincoln or the founding of America or anything that happened in Europe. These are historical events, a flood, scattering, Abraham, Exodus, law, conquest. Try to come up with just one word that captures the essence of not only events, but series events. And we looked at kingdom and concluded by looking at the return of Israel in preparation for the next major event, which is the incarnation, or you might say, Coming a Messiah, we could summarize Messiah there. So that's the introduction to eschatology. Now, the rest of the course, I'm going to deal with the major areas of eschatology, and the major area is Israel. In fact, I'm going to stress over and over, Bible eschatology is Jewish. And if you keep that in mind, that will help you not fall into these other traps that Christians have fallen into throughout church history. There's no way will you come up with, for example, amillennialism. If you understand, and you'll see it as we go through different passages, eschatology is Jewish. In fact, you should have seen it with this brief kind of overview of the Old Testament foundations there. There's nothing in anything that we've looked at concerning the church. There's no eschatology in there concerning the church that we've looked at so far. Now, we'll look at some things that pertain to the church, but nothing so far. There's no prophetic mention of the church. Why? The church is what? How does Paul describe it? Ephesians 3, three, grafted in, but what phrase I'm looking for? Or the word? Mystery. Mystery. (laughs) It's a mystery. And biblically, that word has nothing to do with mysteriousness. It has more to do with The idea is something hidden, something unknown, something not revealed. So the church is not revealed until you come to the New Testament. It's Jesus that first opens this idea up. That's in Matthew 16, where he talks about this ecclesia, the Jews, the disciples, rather, didn't have a clue what he's talking about. And they certainly didn't envision a building with a steeple and a cross on top. (laughs) The word means assembly. So they were thinking, what kind of assembly is he talking about here? Okay, let's get into Israel, and we won't complete this today. But And and the reason for that is eschatology is Jewish, so in a sense, we're going to lay all of the foundation for everything else we talk about. So if you understand the Jewishness of eschatology, then everything else is pretty simple. Okay, Israel and news. Uh, From a kind of humanistic, secular perspective, there should never be an Israel today. And yet, it's at the center of virtually every news story we hear about today, or pops up more often than what humanistically it should happen. Little tiny strip of land about the size of New Jersey in a desert with people that are hated. How come this little piece of land even has people on it today. Well, just a few things. Just uh, an encouraging thing, the new administration, the Trump administration, hopefully has turned in a new direction. The last administration was a very great concern in terms of their attitude to Israel because of the things that we've talked about. Remember what we said, world history hinges, you know, is in line with what God said in the Abrahamic Covenant. 
And we were actually moving ourselves as a country with the last administration in a very dangerous and precarious situation. Maybe that'll change. It looks like it might since the first one of the first leaders Trump consulted with or called was Netanyahu. And it looks like there's going to be a new relationship. And we can hope for that and pray for that and maybe even lobby for it. So we have a new administration that is going to put Israel in a better situation, or the United States in a better situation in relationship to Israel. We had that UN resolution, which is totally unbiblical and totally outside of what God would have. And it puts the world in a precarious situation. Don't want to mess with Israel. Not because they're so powerful, but because be cursed. because God is powerful and they'll be cursed, exactly. And Obama, showing his true colors, did not veto that resolution that essentially condemned Israel and put them in a, from a human perspective, a precarious situation, but we know better. This whole idea of a two-state solution that keeps popping up and they keep talking about it, that totally goes against Scripture as well. It's the very opposite. And Israel has fallen for kind of false ideas there, and to their own detriment. It's not going to hinder anything what God's going to do, but anytime you cut up any of the land, you're basically cutting up what God gave in the Abrahamic covenant, so you don't want to give away land for peace, or and two-state solution is a movement in that direction. These are just things in the news, just to kind of emphasize the importance of Israel, even politically on the world scene today, and they should not even exist. It's amazing how many Christians will support the Palestinians coming to the yes to the death almost. Yeah, and there's a divide in our country. Wait a minute! If yeah. you look at what's taught there, that's not a good idea. <laughs> well, most people are biblically the, illiterate. Exactly, yeah. that's the direction that the world is going. Um, you know, against the Bible. So, and it's always been that way. Yeah. Well, another thing that kind of struck me this last week that the you know, this um, spiritual warfare is really heightening. Is that there were uh, there were people of, opposed to Trump in Israel? That there were yeah. groups of people opposing what, yeah. what he's doing now, even though he's expressed positive support for the country. Yeah. So there were demonstrations against him in Israel. Yeah. Interesting. That. Uh, well, I think things are really getting pretty warm. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of Jewish people are atheists today in Israel. Very secular. In fact, there's a big, uh, what's the word, uh, Barb, she's been there a few times, but no. There's a kind of conflict even within the Knesset, the secular Jews against the Hasidic Jews and the more Orthodox Jews. There's some friction there. And the ones that are more secular are more secular than people here in this country. <laughs> yeah, so there's some conflicts there. Uh, and we'll talk about this, but we'll, we'll talk about what's going on in terms of Bible prophecy as well. Another thing, terror threats, they face that every day. That's a situation every day that people in Israel have to be concerned about. They build bomb shelters, especially if they're close to areas like Gaza. So terror is always on, the, on their minds. We can learn a lot from them as to how to deal with it. And there's a growing anti-Semitism and that's throughout the world. And you saw it very vividly in that UN resolution that was passed recently. And it's growing in our country. So uh, Israel's in the news. And it's a thorn in the flesh of 
people in general, the world. Mm -hmm. And we could add to that, and probably today, by the end of the day, we could erase the dots and put something else on there. So let's take a look at Israel. And let's start by, I'm giving you a little introduction here. I'm using the outline sheet, so I'll give you a little introduction here on the views. Israel today and the views... And these are, these are the majority views, before we get to the last one, the, the majority view concerning Israel. And a lot of this stems historically and hasn't changed, even though there is a nation. But you could, you could kind of sympathize with interpreters before 1948, actually, when there was no state of Israel. Uh, you can kind of see where it was difficult to conceive, and maybe there's another way of interpreting these passages that pertain to Israel. I think today there's no excuse. There's an Israel in the land. But before that, interpreters tended towards covenant theology. They still do today. In other words, we are a minority. And covenant theology in general sees the Old Testament Israel as essentially equal to the New Testament church. In other words, in this period of time, during New Testament era, we are the people of God. We are the Israel today. The church is Israel today. So they will take lots of passages from the Old Testament, spiritualize them, and try to apply them to the church. Eric? To me, it seems misleading because our theology is based on covenant, but not the way they're using No. So it, it kind of muddies the water a little bit because you're using... The same terms, but with totally different meanings. Yes, and and in fact, the covenant that covenant theology uses is not the same covenants that we talked about. They have two primary covenants that are not the Abrahamic or Mosaic or the others. They have two that, in their theology, precede them. There's a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And they overshadow the covenants that we looked at when we were looking at that overview there. But anyway, this is probably one of the predominant views. This would be even the Roman Catholic viewpoint. That's why we have priests in the Roman Catholic Church, because they are kind of the analogy to the priests of the Old Testament. Now, Roman Catholicism isn't covenant theology, but they would have that same Old Testament, Israel equals New Testament. Sheila? Do any churches raise themselves... Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, virtually all Reformed theology is covenant theology, yeah. No, in fact, uh, they have some very, very harsh words to say about us terrible dispensationalists. Yeah, very definitely. Yeah, this is a very contrary view to what we are taking. Yeah, there's some very good theologians. And good, excellent theologians. Yeah. And like I've said all along, they can't all be like me. I mean, you know. <laughs> It's hard to do that. Replacement theology. Now, this, in in a lot of ways, is a subset of covenant theology, but this is gaining in popularity as well. And I throw that up there because it relates to Israel. Their viewpoint is that Israel has been judged, was judged in the first century. In fact, that uh, preterist viewpoint would be replacement theology, but not only that preterist view. There's others as well. And it stems from covenant theology. So Israel was judged in 70 AD, and we would I would agree with that. There was a judgment in 70 AD that was on the nation of Israel. I think Jesus more than hints at that. And replaced by the church. That's why it's called replacement theology. 
So everything that was promised to Israel, we have inherited. Because Israel's rejected and replaced by the church. Now, not everyone that holds the replacement theology is anti-Semitic, but it opens the door to that. And historically, the church has tended towards anti-Semitism, including the Catholic Church. In fact, there were periods, periods, uh, lots of anti-Semitism. It still exists today. And, I was teaching in Poland. And, is that right? Oh, man. Anti-Semitic. Yes, yes, mm. yes. They did not want to admit that Mary was a Jewish lady. What? And I'm just like, <laughs> are you kidding me? It's just yeah. strange. Yeah, yeah. So, they didn't want to admit that, that Mary was a Jewish lady. Oh, I see. Was Jesus Jewish? But but they worshipped her more than him anyway. So that yeah. but you know, if you right. call Jesus Jewish, oh, that's fine. See. But if you call Mary Jewish, oh that was you know that's like salt in her eyes. I was confused because I didn't think I, I thought they were saying Mary from no, Mary, 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 Mary Mother, Mother of Jesus. Jesus. Yes. yes. Okay, that makes yeah. sense because I'm like So what was she in, in they they even have some myths that she was born in the south the southern part of Poland. Um, she's Polish. All right. <laughs> it was strange. I'd never yep. encountered Get me started with Brazil. There's a lot of stuff that you'd be like, and, and Catholicism, they're so present, so strong. You have no idea. Yeah. Okay. And the view that I think most of you, if not all of you, would hold is called dispensationalism. Don't be afraid of it. If you read a lot, you'll see that it is hated, despised. And some dispensationalists are even fearful of revealing themselves. <laughs> but dispensationalism basically says that there's a definite distinction between Israel and the church. They're not the same. In fact, you can come up with a long list of things that make them different. Probably the most important one is Israel is a nation. The church is what? An organism, not a nation, It's, it, but it's definitely not a nation. And in fact, it is to evangelize the nation so that you have people from all nations. So it's distinct from the church. So we make a strong distinction between Israel and the church. And this is very, very important eschatologically because if Israel is the church, then the passages eschatologically pertain to the church, because it, and especially if it's replacement, because Israel's done, it's finished, it's over. They blew it. But we would say, no, there's a future for the nation of Israel. And I would even say it's stronger in that uh, I stress the idea that eschatology is Jewish, is Jewish. So this is just kind of a reminder of what we've looked at the history of Israel. We have the origin, and in that little brief outline, the origin, that's Genesis that tells us where Israel came from. And the point of this is basically history is about Israel. And that's why I said the Abrahamic covenant is a summary of world history. God sets all of the parameters after Abraham according to what he promised in the Abrahamic covenant. All of world history is working itself out in relationship to Israel. So world history is about Israel. And I always encourage people to look for their, in this case, University of New Mexico world history book and see if you can find that statement. It's our, it's our historical GPS. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So Israel. So it's not just the history of Israel. It's a history of, war, of the world, but it pertains 
to Israel at its focus. So you have the origin, and we looked at the emerging of them, where God spends lots of time bringing them together out of Egypt into a nation. It takes all of those stages that we looked at. And then we looked at the kingdom, very distinct. That's the high point. God intended from Genesis 1.28 to rule the world through kings of Israel, through the nation of Israel, to subdue and rule. Remember that? That's the high point. And under David and Solomon, that's the high point of world history, you could even say, when Israel was the empire of the world. But because Israel's made of humans with sinful minds and hearts, etc., sinful kings, there was a decline, cycles of sin that we talked about. There was a decline and eventual collapse and destruction of the nation of Israel. Then you have a little bit of a return. We have an exile. Then you have a return. And all of that prepares the way for the coming of a Messiah. So, uh, Ray, how does uh, uh, secular history look at Solomon? How do they... David and Solomon... Even in the Jewish archaeology, they're almost more mythical than actual, than real. Yeah, they, they totally minimize Israel's history and that kingdom. I Go ahead. I was going to say, I remember in the university, I was studying uh, world history, and the way the professor, I mean, this is non Christian school, right. but secular school, but the way the professor presented it was that, you know, there was a lapse in these other major kingdoms, and that's the only reason Israel was able to come to power. Come to power. And I'm just saying, no, that's not right. Right. I didn't know how to argue. And they probably said it was a very short-lived thing in the lifetime of one man, Solomon, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was almost like a blip on the screen, and that's it. And that's a good description of it. Yeah. But we see from the coming of Messiah an inter-advent age until... The kingdom that's going to have all of the characteristics of the other kingdom. Idealized with a, like for example, sinless king, sinless messiah. So keys to eschatology. This is still introduction here. Keys to eschatology. The essence of eschatology is Jewish. The essence of eschatology is Jewish. And you could even take the statement in Zechariah in a very, very broad way. In fact, I do. And Zechariah is saying there, for he who touches you, speaking of nations, the world, unbelievers, whoever, touches the apple of his eye. In other words, and use the analogy, most one of the most sensitive parts of our body would be our eye, and it's like poking your finger in the eye of God when you mess with Israel. They're the focal point of all of history. So you don't want to mess with Israel. In fact, you want to do everything to bless Israel because your well-being is dependent on it. So it's not speaking, strictly speaking, of eschatology, but I think that principle pervades all of world history and certainly eschatology from the Abrahamic covenant. So here's a thumbnail sketch of Jewish eschatology. We've already seen this. We've already seen this from our foundations to eschatology. There's failure and discipline. We've seen that throughout their history. There's failure and discipline. Never abandonment, but there's discipline. We saw it in Genesis. The tribes of Israel, they were sent to Egypt as discipline. And then the major one, uh, they were scattered. The northern kingdom was scattered and the southern kingdom was taken captive by the Babylonians. That's discipline. 
It's discipline. And nowhere in there is Israel abandoned totally and ultimately. In fact, it's in the Babylonian captivity that we have Ezekiel and Daniel where we have future of Israel laid out. So there's failure and discipline. That's part of eschatology. And we're still in the discipline phase. We, in the 21st century, are in the discipline phase of Israel, of Israel's eschatology. This is a main theme of Israel's eschatology, tribulation, a tribulation. And as you study through Scripture, we're going to look shortly here at one of the first announcements of that before they're even a nation, before they enter the land, before God makes them a nation, it's already predicted that there's going to be a period of tribulation. And then it's made more specific, and by the time you get towards the end of the Old Testament and you come to the book of Daniel, we have the exact number of years precisely. And we have some detail, and it's split in two parts, this period of tribulation. This is Jewish eschatology. Now, the reason why you want to not even think about post-tribulationalism or mid-tribulationalism or pre-wrath view or the partial rapture view. I mean, the church has nothing to do with this period of time. It's, this is Jewish. This is Jewish eschatology. Keep that in mind. If you're tempted, someone gives you ten reasons why their mid-tribulation view is better than your pre-trib view. Another major theme, a theme of the prophets. And by the way, the tribulation is described in a lot of detail in the prophets as well. And also what's stressed and emphasized is restoration of the nation of Israel. Restoration. And you can probably give me the next one. What is another major theme of Jewish eschatology? I only have five on there, so you have to have something in there. Coming Messiah. Very good, yep. You have to have Messiah, and Jim's got the fifth one, Kingdom. That's a thumbnail sketch of Jewish eschatology. And basically, it's a thumbnail sketch of all of eschatology. Eschatology that pertains to the church has to fit into that eschatology right there. And we'll talk about that. So that's essentially what we're going to do when we talk about this. the rest of this course, is deal with all those issues. So, the essence of eschatology is Jewish. Another key to eschatology is understanding Old Testament prophecies and, uh, and the covenants that we looked at. We went into a little bit of detail on those covenants. That's why we spent the time, because they're the key to understanding eschatology. They're legal documents where God has bound himself legally to perform the stipulations that are contained in those contracts, and those contracts have been working themselves out. It's, it's almost like God monthly is paying the mortgage. He's, you know, he's fulfilling what he committed. And every period of history, God has just introduced a new aspect, or not, in, not new, but fulfilled what he has bound himself legally to do, and it's very clear what he's going to do. So we know the outcome, and that's eschatology, knowing the outcome, where it's all going to end. So it's dependent on these promises or prophecies and covenants. And it all is heading from our perspective to that next event of Jewish eschatology, tribulation. I just put the rapture there because it's in terms of the overall 
that pertains to us. And that's basically all we have in terms of eschatology. There's a few other little things, but that's the main issue relating to the church. And what it is, it's a removal from where God is going to now begin to work again to begin to take the next stage of fulfilling what he has promised, a seven-year period of time. It's going to culminate in the arrival or the coming of Messiah and then the kingdom. Okay, so here's a preview. Turn to Deuteronomy. Before Israel became a nation... We have the book of Deuteronomy. And remember, Deuteronomy is what? Remember from second giving of the law. Of the law. Very good. You were even in jury duty when we said that. Didn't we? <laughs> I was here for that. You were here because I learned it that day. That was something I didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know that? Yeah. It was. It was directed toward the second generation. It was not the exile. Exactly, or the uh, Exodus generation. Yeah. The second generation, the Exodus generation died out. So it's a re-giving of the law to the second generation. And it's before they enter the land. In fact, it's to prepare them to take the land. This is what God intended to that first generation. They failed and they were disciplined. There's another example of the discipline. And he predicted that they would all die out and they were even numbered and all that. And this is the generation. So it's a re-giving of the Mosaic Covenant, and you have another sacrifice where they enter into it and everything else, and some of the details are identical, Ten Commandments again, and it's even made more specific, and in fact you have details concerning kings, it's in Deuteronomy, in the Mosaic Law, in Deuteronomy, and let's read chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, And by the way, this is the more specific part of the Mosaic Covenant that we also identify as the Palestinian Covenant. Remember that little discussion? Hanada, why don't you read verse 1? Verse 1 of 28. 28.1. If you fully obey the Lord, your God, and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations. Wow. All the nations on earth. Contingent on what? Obey. Obedience. Obedience. Yep. Now, this is not only a promise, but remember we looked at the other passage that talks about a different covenant. This is a this is going to be a covenant. This is a part of the Palestinian covenant, a subset of the Mosaic. But nation of Israel is to obey. Alright? And then he goes on and he describes Just these multitude of blessings. Not just that they will be high above all the nations of the earth. They're going to be the empire of the earth if they obey. And keep context in mind. This is before they even are a nation. They're just a group of tribes that have been bound together with the same experience in the wilderness. They have their constitution. That's the rest of the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Deuteronomy. But they don't have the land yet, so they're not a nation yet, full-fledged anyway. And if you read from verse 2, all these blessings blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. We have a long list all the way to verse 14. It, it pertains to climatology. It pertains to the raising of their crops. They're going to be blessed in the raising of their crops. They're going to have abundant children. They're going to have even longevity of life. They're going to be, have health. Their enemies are going to be subdued. So it's going to involve the other nations as well if they obey. But 
Vivian, read verse 15. But, notice. <laughs> but it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses upon you. Uh-oh. Curses. So there, there's a choice. There's volition involved. Man has two options here. Contingent on obedience, but if they do not obey, then we have a list of curses. They correspond with the blessings. You know, they, they deal with all kinds of areas. Climatology again, the natural realm, their land's going to be like a desert and all that. It's not going to be productive. Their children are going to be sickly and all these issues. Their enemies are going to rise up against them. That's the context. So blessings if they obey, discipline if they disobey. So that's number two on your preview here. This is a preview of eschatology. That's why I've got preview up there. And then that discipline is even going to extend to the ultimate, which we call exile or destruction. And this is crystal clear in Deuteronomy. I can't stress too much. This is before they even are a nation, before they enter the land. And for that one, let's skip to verse 63 of 28. After he's laid out all of these curses, one area of cursing, beginning in 63, let's read, read 63 and 64. Barb, do you want to, Barb? And as the Lord took delight in them upon you. Ruin upon you, wow, pretty strong. Keep reading, sorry. Ruin you, and you shall be plucked off the land. Okay, plucked off the land. What do you need to have a nation? Land. They're going to be plucked off. Keep reading. 64. And the Lord will scatter you among all people to the other, and there you shall have been stopped, neither you nor your father. Okay. Pretty severe. Destruction, ruin, scattering. He even predicts idolatry. This is before they're even a nation. Every single thing there already has been fulfilled. Two times in the history of Israel. Interesting. But... There's restoration. This is predicted as well. He's giving them a summary of the rest of their history. And from their perspective, all of it is eschatological. Some of it is still eschatological from our time. This is why eschatology is Jewish. Restoration to the land. Let's skip to chapter 30 for that one. And by the way, there's other passages in here if you want to, that relate to this exile. You might read these on your own, but 28, uh, read 36 and 37. In fact, before we go, let's read 41. 28. Yeah, I'm just giving you more verses in chapter 28. 36 and 37. And Eric, why don't you read verse 30, 41 before we move away? You shall have sons and daughters, but they will not be yours, for they will go into captivity. Into captivity. That's Babylonian. He's predicting the Babylonian captivity here. And this is a, this is 1405. Babylonian captivity begins about 605. How many years is that? Six from 14 is what? 800 years. Okay, skip to 30, chapter 30. Sheila, do you want to read, first of all, 1 and 2? Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come of the blessing which I have set, when you call them to mind among all the nations, where the Lord your God drives them. Okay, stop there for a minute. Notice, God knows, obviously, he's uh, omniscient. 
He knows they're going to experience all of these things. They're going to experience times of blessings, but they're going to experience times of cursing. They don't know that the cursings are going to probably be more than the blessings because they're going to be more disobedient than they are obedient. But he's predicting all that. He's predicting their world history here, or their history, rather. What was the reference? 30, 31, 30, first one. And then the last part there, it refers to that exile, where the Lord your God has banished you. He's predicting their exile. Read verse 2, Sheila. And return to your God and voice according to today, and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay. That's never really been fulfilled. They had a partial return with Ezra and Nehemiah, but that doesn't really fulfill this verse. That was kind of a preview of a fulfillment, like some of the other prophecies. They've never really obeyed with all of their heart and soul. That even looks future from our day, but it's a prediction. It's a, it's eschatological. It's going to happen. See, Jim, do you want to read 3 and 4? Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the people the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay, so there's scattering, there's exile, there's captivity, all of that in here. Now, if you're outcasts, are of the ends of the earth. From there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there, he will bring you back. Bring you back, and in verse 5, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land. Into the land. Into Israel. Back to the land. This was not necessarily referring to coming back from Babylon. This is what happened in 1948. Yes. This is long range. But it's... The Ford, obviously, you know, the Lord knows what he's going to do, and this is what, and he's going to do it. He's going to bring them back. The Lord, your God, will bring you into the land. It's going to be a divine work. It's not the church getting better and better and better and better until God says, oh, you've done such a good job, let's start the kingdom. Okay, so there's restoration. This is all a preview. There's judgment on the nation. This is how Gentiles fit into Jewish eschatology. Read verse 7, Mark 30, verse 7. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. Now, some of that has been worked out historically, but I think it ultimately looks at that tribulation period where God is going to just end all rebellion of the nation. Well, not all, but until that last one in the kingdom. But there's a prediction there. In yep. six, so isn't it millennial, though, in the circumcising earth? Yeah. Yeah, so is five. I think five's millennial as well. Yeah, exactly. Because that doesn't really, I mean, it's even though they're back in the land, they're not. Right. Yeah, we're going to talk about stages. He doesn't give us every detail here. He's given us a preview. The prophets are going to give us more detail. So judgment of the nations is even in that as well. So this is a preview of Jewish eschatology. And there's going to be ultimate blessings, which are kingdom-related, 8 through 10. Hanada. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands. I am giving it today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of our land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your father's. If you obey the Lord, your God, and keep his commands and decrees that aren't written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord, your God, with all your heart 
and with all your soul. Has that ever happened historically? Yeah. Not even in the first century. <laughs> Not even first century. In fact, the nation rejected their king, their Messiah. That's not mentioning the Messiah specifically, but Yahweh is basically their Messiah. That looks, I think, to their ultimate blessing in the kingdom. So Moses, or God, through Moses, gives Israel the rest of their history, essentially. Preview of it. And there's other verses that relate to these. I just gave you some of these. So Israel in Deuteronomy points towards a kingdom. And I think the kingdom under Solomon and David kind of foreshadows the ultimate kingdom. But throughout their history, they're going to have blessings and discipline. In other words, throughout time. And you've seen that fulfilled. When Israel was faithful, God blessed them. When they weren't, God cursed them, scattered them, disciplined them, left them at the mercy of their enemies to the point that they were exiled. That was in the Old Testament. And they had a partial restoration, Ezra and Nehemiah, but that wasn't complete. And there's a future judgment of the nations, putting it on a timeline here, and the ultimate blessing of the kingdom. So it's a preview of the rest of their, their history. From the perspective of the New Testament, we have, again, the origin, emergence, the kingdom, and we have the coming of the Messiah. And you might even think that the disciples thought, well, shortly, kind of like time is crunched in here like an accordion here. The disciples thought maybe in our lifetime, Jesus will return. And as they ask in Acts 1.6, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Nope, not now. And in chapter 3, Peter anticipates possibility, even in his lifetime after chapter 1, that maybe Messiah will come then. He didn't. And when he comes, you would anticipate the kingdom as soon as he arrives. And then eternity. But we have to kind of stretch that out. And we've been stretching for 2,000 years in this inter-advent age. And then now we believe in a future millennial kingdom that the Jewish people expected and anticipated that is detailed in great detail in the Old Testament. And we talked about the covenants, just a reminder here, the overarching Abrahamic covenant that pertains to a seed in the land and blessings of the na- blessings of Israel and blessings of the nation. And there's some conditional aspects pertaining to the Mosaic covenant including the land or the Palestinian covenant. Palestinian pertains to the land. Davidic pertains to a specificity of the seed. In other words, it's going to involve kings, and it's going to involve blessing. That's the new covenant of which we benefit. Let me briefly, since I didn't do it before, explain that new covenant, how we enter into it. I think based on Hebrews 8, where the writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant based on that passage and based on what Jesus says in the upper room when they had the la- what we call the Last Supper and Jesus basically institutes a communion service in that. He's talking about the new covenant and he's speaking to a Jewish audience. He's speaking to Jewish people, but knowing the situation, knowing the next few hours he's going to be crucified he is essentially laying out new covenant truth there. But we have a little bit of an issue because this is a legal document. And if you look at uh, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, 
It is with whom, who are the parties to the covenant? In other words, who are the legal signees? God and Judah and Israel. God and Judah and Israel. Now, in Ezekiel, uh, Israel is already scattered, and Judah is going into captivity, or by the time that comes into play, they're already, most of them are in Babylon. And the reason both of them are mentioned, because it tells us that there's going to be a uniting of Judah and Israel. They are the parties. It's not the ecclesia. It's not the church. The church is not parties to the new covenant. Well, how come we seem to enjoy the regenerating work that the new covenant includes? Remember all the things that I listed? About nine things on there. Regeneration, intimate fellowship, changed heart, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What were some of the other things in there? We had several of them in there, but those are the main things. How is it that we benefit from that? And did Jesus institute it, and now the church has replaced Israel? That's a viewpoint that some people take. The way I harmonize it is that we enter into an intimate relationship with the ultimate of Israel, the Messiah. And Romans, I think, explains a little bit in the grafting in. We're grafted in, and we share in the benefits of the new covenant, not being parties to the covenant. But there's also a direct way that we enjoy the blessings, because the new covenant is an aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is made with Israel, or with uh, Abraham and his descendants and God, but one of the functions and purposes of Israel is to bless the nations. The nations will be blessed through Abraham. We are the Gentile. We are the uh, Goyim. We are the nations, if you will. And through the Abrahamic covenant, we receive the blessings, and the blessings manifest themselves as spelled out by the new covenant. And it's through the Abrahamic covenant that we enjoy the blessings and the benefits of the new covenant. Does that make sense? We are not parties to it, but we receive the blessings through Israel's Messiah based on our relationship to him and that grafting in experience. So what that means, there has to be a literal fulfillment of the new covenant with the parties of the covenant, which has not happened yet. So we don't enter in as parties of the covenant. We enter in kind of through the back door because we're related to Israel's Messiah. And because we're goyim, that Israel's Messiah is blessing us with. Make sense? So there's no replacement here. And we'll talk some more about that, not this week, but next week we'll talk about Israel and their fulfillment of the new covenant. Real quickly, just a quick reminder, the Abrahamic covenant, I've kind of emphasized that, just re-emphasizing it. It's unconditional. Several times in the covenant, I will do whatever. I will do this. I will do that. God speaking. It's unilateral. Remember, Abraham was put to sleep when the ceremony came about. So God unconditionally makes long-range promises. All of the rest of world history parameters of world history are set by the Abrahamic covenant is personal. It involves Abraham first and foremost, but doesn't stop there. It's national. 
and that it includes the descendants. So it's the controlling document for all of the nation of Israel and has for all of its history and will all the way into the millennial kingdom. Has not been fulfilled totally. The heart of it is the land and the stress throughout the Old Testament is the land, literally. Not just kind of a spiritual concept of some sort. And like I said, it sets parameters for all of world history, so it includes all the nations. New Covenant via, not the New Covenant, because we're not parties. We're not parties of the New Covenant, but we receive the benefits or the blessings as a result of the Abrahamic Covenant. So the nations are blessed or cursed, depending on that, on the their relationship to Israel. So it controls all of world history. And it's universal in that it's going to have impact in all the families of the world. That's why I see it as very, very broad-based. It's a universal covenant, all the families involved. And it's eternal. It's called everlasting in 17.8, an everlasting covenant. So it's going to include all of the millennial kingdom as well. And it's eschatological because some aspects of it have not yet been been fulfilled. All of the stipulations have not been completely fulfilled. So that's just an example of the controlling covenant. And most of the others are subsets of it except the Mosaic covenant, which Jesus fulfilled it, essentially. So that's Old Testament prophecies and covenants. Another key to eschatology is the whole purpose. If If Israel... And eschatology is Jewish, then uh, the purpose of Israel is related to eschatology. And we could say that there are multi-purposes there to be the blessing of the world. And they have been. In fact, in many ways, Israel has fulfilled that. Some of it unknowingly, some of it unintentionally, but they have fulfilled it in at least two aspects. Can you think of the two major aspects where they have been a blessing to the world already and always have been? That's one of the main ones is the Messiah comes through the nation of Israel. The Word of God. The Word of God. Very good. Two of those. Those are the two major ones and a lot of others as well. But they've been a blessing to the world already. And that's their purpose from the Abrahamic Covenant. They are called a chosen nation, a chosen people, and because of that, they are the chosen instrument of God as an elect nation. So being an elect nation, and by the way, uh, we won't look this up because we've already looked at it, but Exodus 19, 4 through 6, spells out some of that. And again, this is before they're even a nation. This is before they even have the law, because the law comes in chapter 20. God tells them they are a special people, an elect, a chosen nation. And it's through this relationship that they do, in fact, bless the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to mediate between lost humanity and God himself. They were a kingdom that mediated between them. And people would come to God through the nation of Israel. So that's their elect purpose. And there's the kingdom of priests aspect, and that's reiterated, well, it's in verse 6, Exodus 19, 6. 
there to be a revelation to God. They're to demonstrate God's graciousness, God's mercy. They also end up to be a revelation of God's discipline and judgment because they experience it. And the world can look back at their history and see how God intervenes in history to judge. So a lot of aspects there of revelation of God. You cannot know God apart from revelation. There is a doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. God is incomprehensible. And there are several verses that indicate that. One of them, off the top of my head, Isaiah 55, I believe, where we do not understand, we do not know God. No man has seen God at any time, New Testament. So no one really knows God. The only way we know God is through a revelation. In other words, everything that we know of God has to come through revelation. Otherwise, we distort God. And without that revelation, all we have is a distorted view of who God is. Israel was the prime vehicle that God used to reveal God. And he does that in a variety of ways. It was done through the law. It was done through their obedience. It was done through their relationship to the Lord. But it was even shown in the way that when they disobeyed in the way that God dealt with them at that point. So that's their purpose. And if that's their purpose, then obviously when we speak of eschatology, we're just seeing the unfolding, the end product of God's working amongst the nation of Israel. And as Eric pointed out, we have the oracles of God from the nation of Israel. Every book of the Bible, except Luke, but Luke was under Jewish influence, was written by a Jewish person, a descendant of the oracles of God. And also we mentioned the bringing of Messiah. So that's the main, these are the main purpose of the nation of Israel. And you can see the scope of these far-reaching and aspects that have not been totally fulfilled. So the purpose of Israel is a key to eschatology. If you understand the purpose of Israel, even the establishment of Israel itself, most of the areas that speak of the establishment of Israel have been not totally fulfilled. Aspects relating to them as an elect nation and it's probably good to read somebody, where did we leave off? I think Mark read that. Hanada, why don't you read, look up Deuteronomy 14, Jim, Jeremiah 31, 3, Sheila, Romans 11, 29. Now when I say, kind of in that prior slide, the establishment of Israel, I'm talking about it kind of in a broad sense. Deuteronomy, what did you get? 14, 2? For you are a people holy, to the Lord your God, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Mm, doesn't it go on? Oh, okay. I, it, it rearranged the text there. Yeah. My version says, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So everyone that is non-Jewish from all of those, this is his elect nation. And this isn't the only passage that kind of spells that out. You could also put Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 that speak of them as a chosen or elect nation. We also see Jeremiah 31, 3. 31, 3. 31, 3. Did I give you? Did I okay, let's see. The no, Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you. I with chesed. 
And notice it's an everlasting love, an eternal love. So he's not going to abandon them. He's not going to replace them. Everlasting. And the outpouring of that is unfulfilled as well. You can see it historically, but it's... And the call is unrevoked, 1129. So the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling, and you could even say covenants are even more so. They are legally binding. So they have an unrevoked call. The Romans, Romans 11.29. Their purpose has never been even closely fulfilled. They've had some partial fulfillment in that they provided the Messiah, things like that. Provided the scriptures. Occupied the land for a partial period of time, but... Most of their promises are unfulfilled, so we have a lot of unfulfilled purposes and unfulfilled promises. So just the establishment of Israel, they still have a huge future that is eschatological. And another key, not only the establishment of Israel, but the failure of Israel, because that serves a purpose as well. And one of the huge purposes of the failure of Israel, God has established a new way of dealing with humanity through what we we are part of as as goyim or ethne or gentiles and the church so even the failure of israel has a purpose and a plan and within that god has always kept a remnant of israel even in the midst of their failure a remnant of israel I think I've got a scripture on your outline sheet. Yeah, let's read Romans 9.29, Eric. Romans 9.29. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of uh, Sabaoth had left us, left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Okay. And that's kind of a general principle throughout their history. God has always preserved at least a remnant. And that verse gets at that idea. So there's a preservation of the nation even in spite of their their failure. And we've already seen because God has legally bound himself by covenant. God has made promises. God has put himself out on a limb and been very, very detailed in those promises are fulfilled. So God has maintained a remnant of believers and stirred the hearts. He's always had believing people, sometimes very small, but there's always been a bit of remnant. You might even view the church and the Jewish people within the body of Christ as something of a remnant. Let's take a break at this point and come back and just remind you of what we talked about with the 